Hello, welcome back. Welcome. Oh, today is such an exciting and special treat. Yeah, we have a guest. It's been a while since we've had a guest. And it is our good friend, Paula, who has had her name kind of sprinkled throughout a few episodes here and there. And our most faithful listeners will know. One of them, <laughs> yes. So we're going to keep it like super lighthearted today and talk about uh, fascism, particularly Nazis and knights and masculinity. So, mm. you know, you're sure casual holiday season vibes. <laughs> um, I remember, weren't we going to do like the, the Netflix the night before night? Christmas? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it's tonight before Christmas and it has like Vanessa Hudgens in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe maybe we'll next week. <laughs> or maybe when we're on our hiatus, we can just do like a instagram twitter kind of side thing because (laughs) i do feel like that's inevitable so um before we get going for those of you who don't remember i'm megan and i'm ella and welcome to modern media the podcast yeah we're going to introduce paula after i do the surprise clip for both of them because i just think that it'll be a, a something quite funny it's about two minutes or so so bear with me i guess i'll give it a preface before For those of you who want to know what it is, I guess I'll give a little preview to it. It is from the final kind of confrontation scene in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which for myself... I knew you were going to do that. (laughs) I I knew you were going to do that. (laughs) I think is a great kind of uh, modern medieval pop culture reference. (laughs) So we are going to be looking at when Harrison Ford, who I think as Indiana Jones is a good visual for us to consider, I think with where Paola is going to go and him meeting the last, it could be Knight Templar or Knight of the Round Table, complicated in this very medieval tavern cave as they choose the Holy Grail. Come, my strength has left me. Who are you? The last of three brothers who swore an oath find the grail and to grant the years ago. Time to wait. Strangely dressed for a night. Not exactly. Night? What do you mean? I was chosen because I was the bravest and most worthy. The honor was mine until another came to challenge me to single combat. And then dun dun dun, the Nazis come in. I think this is like a fun setup because the knight is talking about how he's been here for 700 years and Valor, he was the best of the best chosen to protect this sacred idea. And he calls Harrison Ford, who's, you know, super Indiana Jonesified, a knight. And so I guess this begs questions of appearance or what is masculine because Harrison Ford has been seen as this very like grumbly, strong masculine character. And I think that because also Nazis are present and it's about knights and it's a super medieval setting, it's a great setup for Paula, so hello. Hi. <laughs> um, welcome to the podcast. Finally. 
finally, after listening and knowing both of you for for a very, very long time now, many years. <laughs> this year has felt endless, so I, I can understand. <laughs> so I guess to start off, Pella, why don't you give us a little, or our audience, I should say, a little introduction, like, who are you? What do you do? Hi, I'm Paula <laughs> Medina Gonzalez, and I recently graduated with the two of you from University College London Whee! and a fellow art historian. And I mostly study um, like late World War One to post World War II Germany with a little bit of focus on gender studies and the history of masculinity. So cool. I like how you said a little bit, even though your entire dissertation was asking (laughs) what is gendered masculinity and presentations of masculinity. (laughs) Hey, that's a a little bit intense for... (laughs) Yeah. Um, We were talking before we recorded, and so today, we'll definitely have Pella back. So today's a bit more of a, uh, not a prelude, but an introduction, because we have yet to discuss what is masculinity and what is femininity and how does that relate to the medieval, especially Mm -hmm. because it's such a trope and such a kind of, I don't want to say commonplace, but chivalric codes, you know, being polite, a knight on shining armor. Oh, you, you saved me. I mean, like any Mm rom-com, you know, so we haven't done that really yet. We've talked about it. We've alluded to it, but today we're doing the deep dive. We are indeed. Yeah, especially it's uh, masculinity has so many different definitions and it's so new that uh, even the medieval is sort of still tackling what it exactly means to be a masculine figure. Yeah, well, and also, so in preparation for today, yeah, masculinity questions are definitely prevalent. And I read this um, book review for From Boys to Men, mm-hmm. not not the like band, but uh, a book by medieval scholar Ruth Mazokaras, and the review is written by medieval historian uh, John Arnold, or John H. Arnold. And at the end of this review, which I'll probably bring up a few other questions because this book sounds really interesting, he posits the question, um, I'll just do a quick quote, but one wonders whether a question on perspective becomes somewhat key here. So in this study Mm -hmm. of medieval masculinity, the sense in which rather than masculinity being simply achieved, in quotes, and thus gained, masculinity is a thing done and redone and redone in a number of different ways and seen as successful or otherwise from a number of different perspectives. So this is a question of not just not woman, or not boy, or not beast, but this whole plethora or spectrum of what does it mean to be masculine, and how does that exist? So. Yeah, um, without going too deep into theory, um, basically in the 90s, this great writer called R.W. Connells uh, wrote this giant book on that. Uh, like the TLDR is, um, there's no such thing as one single masculinity. Instead, there's an infinite amount because it's based on the value of male identifying people and what is held important in their culture or location, status, and it goes into race, religion, um, class. So it's a very, very complicated. And to just say there's one definition is doing a disservice. <laughs> so yeah. when with this kind of field, what kind of questions do you have to ask yourself before you 
you know start the research how is it because it sounds like possibly very complicated to break down yeah and just quickly off that do you ever find a challenge in asking those questions as a this is actually an assumption on my part but a non-male identifying person so like there's also that on top of it (laughs) but like you're not you know, Joe Schmo doing this research as mm-hmm. a, a like a man's identity. So yeah, uh, so final question. Sorry, yeah, we're, sorry. We're into it. <laughs> no, no, no. I think these are things that I actually sat down with myself and had to question. Like, why? First of all, I was like, why am I interested in this? Um, and then, two, how do I see masculinity represented, especially you know, with my subject being. Um, Nazi Germany. Um, so I like to start with sort of the presumptions, like uh, specifically um, the ideas of ideology and rhetoric and what is valued through the masculine lens. So in art history, we typically look at photographs and we look at propaganda and the art that is developed and how it represents the human body at this time, or if it, if it represents the human body at all. And from there, we sort of get a general, like, gist of um, what that society values. And from there, we start like analyzing exactly what are these things, like whether it be physical or traits or emotional traits. And then we sort of start breaking it down and then we start seeing outliers. Well, this person has this thing and this other person has this thing, but they mismatch in terms of what their family value might be or what they identify as. And that's where it starts becoming very interesting. So from there, you start seeing what the society feels is a masculine presence or a feminine presence or something in between or something that's neither. And I think from there is where you start to develop. And as a woman, or as someone that identifies as a woman looking at these things, I have to be quite careful because, you know, it's not, studying masculinity is not to put down masculine presence, but instead it's just to analyze what is considered important and why exactly it is considered important. And sometimes it is quite fun to be a woman and seeing this from a very outside perspective. Mm-hmm. However, you have to be quite careful to make sure that no one's feelings gets hurt. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and sorry, ju- just jumping off that, do you, have you seen, maybe this is kind of a misguided view of it, but um, have you seen a progression in what it means to be masculine in you know, the different times in which you've um, looked at? Well, what makes me really interested in basically late World War I to World War II studies is the change in the term of masculinity. So it went from, you know, having a Kaiser to having an a very much crazy time between the wars where, you know, there's the communists, there, there's the socialists, there was the imperialists and, you know, everyone's trying to seize for power. And then, you know, in comes in this man that says, we're going to restore our former glory. And, you know, throughout all that, um, there's modernization, you know, there's industry, there is debts to be paid to other countries because of said World War One. So in that, relations between men and women change dramatically and change very quickly throughout a very small period of time. And 
Yes. So like, I don't want to call it progression. I'd like to call it just changes and like Mm -hmm. different values at different times. Okay, great. Well, that's really interesting. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I think that, you know, as I was reading for today, because I'm doing the antithesis of this, I'm looking at, you know, I guess it's very... I'm the moderator. (laughs) But like popular today to look at, you know, women who have been silenced. And then yet in the late 80s, early 90s, you have the development of like male studies and opposition to feminist studies. I personally have a bit of a opinion and like hesitance to that because all of history, I feel, is like his story. Mm -hmm. and. I do get the idea of like, there's this emotional end and kind of more of like a, if you want psychoanalytic, et cetera. And I think, I mean, Pella, you're definitely looking at all of this, like all across all of this. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's just quite interesting, I guess, also in the fact that for scholars to think, oh, well, we have to look at this. They had to do it kind of in response or in opposition to feminist studies and just kind of that. It, it sounds like a paradox or a contradiction, and I don't. Re- this is just thinking out loud. I don't really have a question or answer with that, but it's just, I don't know. It's it's really compelling, like how. And I guess that is just the the story or the myth of this is that you know masculinity or femininity is it is not just like you think in semiotics, which is mm-hmm. you know the the study of language, like how language is developed, and how Saussure was like the best definition for a word, you know, if you hold up a cup is, you know, this is a cup because it is not a cat. It is not a rug. It is not you. Therefore it is this. And though that may be true, the spaces in between each one of those is also another opposition or definition or whatnot. That got a bit theoretical, but I just think it's really interesting. (laughs) So basically, (laughs) just to simplify, I think that it's quite interesting how both of your fields, based off a similar kind of approach, and then they kind of go into like trying to define things and to try and understand things better, which is quite interesting in in the terms of like gender studies. Is is quite something quite complex, really. Yeah. Though, Pella, your research, I mean, we said we... I guess just briefly for our audience to go a little deeper about, you know, what was your UCL dissertation on? Because you're talking about masculinity, but you aren't like macho, macho man. You are like (laughs) the people who created that song, which is the irony in this, right? (laughs) So why don't you? Yeah, um, I had a very interesting dissertation um, in which I looked at photographs of Wehrmacht soldiers caught cross-dressing. And a lot of these uh, photos are um, from random albums found in basements, attics, uh, hidden by Deutsch government (laughs) for a while. Um, So it was recently published into this large book by um, a fellow named Damen. And uh, in the photo book, there is little to no context to how these photographs were acquired, nor who these men are. But what I found very interesting was that um, cross-dressing was very much frowned upon, if not illegal, in certain parts of Germany during the time. And it would not have been tolerated um, by any SS or 
any army. <laughs> it was not allowed at all. Cabaret, um, everyone. Sorry, continue. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like take take for instance the movie Cabaret. <laughs> um, so I basically wrote on, okay, so if this wasn't allowed, why was it still happening? Um, so I looked at a number of factors. One was, you know, Bavarian culture where um, men would dress up as women or they would just dress up as not men and um they would celebrate and have like really cool festivals and there's also the uh performance aspect that was happening during world war one with the deutsches hair and um but that was you know the first world war some of them were veterans of that when they came into the Wehrmacht, but not all. And then uh, most of my research focused on the possibility of queerness as a presence within the army, which is not to say that the men were gay or they were homosexual, but instead that um, moments of pressure um, can create a desire to be outside of one's body mm-hmm. and cross-dressing. And this type of performance was a way to sort of discard this pressure of masculinity and temporarily sort of escape. Um, so, and that's like one possibility. <laughs> sorry, just a question for my own clarification. You know, when you said that um, in Bavarian culture, sometimes men would dress up as not men, would do you mind going a bit deeper into that? Does that mean like gender typical clothes or? Um, so from what I've read, it's basically um, sometimes they would dress up as women and women would dress up as men and yeah. then they would run around and, you know, do shenanigans. Um, other times it would just be non-heteronormative clothing. Okay. So non-gender specific clothing. It would just be like this mishmash of different clothes just, you know, to look wild and appear fun. Right. So basically Um, like cutting free from the style of the time of what men were wear. Yeah. So like it it just depended on the festival and depended on the region. Um, So it's one of those things once more where it's like, it's not specific. um, And most of the examples I have are more contemporary than they are of the time period. I was, uh, I wasn't able to go to Germany and look at those archives. (laughs) Yeah. I think what is really um, kind of provoking in this research and like what you were just speaking of, Paula, is the idea of performance versus presentation. Mm Mm-hmm particularly because you're talking about this tradition, but this is during a festival. So rules don't exist in the everyday social rule norm. I mean, in the Middle Ages, men and women would dress up as one another and play with different, you know, costumes. And it was as well as dress up as animals and beasts and whatnot, because it's a festival, it's a celebration. So this, I'm also thinking, even though it's not German, but we know that from ancient Greece into like Shakespeare and everything that men would play the female characters. So Antigone, Lady Macbeth, Ophelia. So these very, what are seen as today as strong female characters, but they're being presented or performed by men. But that's not, that's different than presenting, which today in queer cross-dressing transgender dialogues you present yourself as your identity, but you are not performing that. And that those are two different, I think they get mixed up, but I guess this is again a theory thing, but they're very different. 
Yeah. And that's basically a large distinction I had to put in like the very beginning of my dissertation. Um, whereas like where I had to state some of these images are of, you know, stage plays performed by uh, soldiers. And at the time there was no women present. So they would have to play the female role. And those images, as interesting as they are, those were not really what I was interested in for my dissertation. I was interested in the images that were very ambiguous in nature. Um, for example, one of them were was um, these two soldiers, one of them dressed up in drag, you know, with fake breasts and a wig and full face of makeup, holding tightly to another soldier who was kind of not seen. And it was a very dark corner of, I don't even know where it was, but it felt so intimate and very, very strange. And it was obvious it wasn't a performance and it felt very like close and it just felt like I was interrupting a moment that I should not have seen. Um, and it's those types of images that I was mostly looking at um, for my dissertation. Hopefully it can build up to a larger project in which I can discuss those photographs of the performances. And Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the private versus public and the intimate versus the kind of like exposed Mm-hmm. So I guess we've done quite a bit of like the heavy theory introduction, <laughs> even though we said we weren't. Um, but I guess to get back to more broad strokes, as well as, mm-hmm. you know, relinking in the Indiana Jones clip, because I had a lot mm-hmm. of reasons actually why I chose this. So one is, this does tie into your uh, dissertation, Pella, but the idea of homosociality. So yeah. men socializing with men. And how this relates to wartime, as you're saying, there are no women unless, you know, you know, famously in Apocalypse Now, they fly in the woman, even though that's later, you know, like certain moments or they raid a town. So men socializing with men, as well as the medieval homosociality of like particularly um, knights. From my research, a lot of this, you know, thinking about Nazis, it was knights more than um, the ecclesiastical, so monasteries and all of that, because that's a different type of homosociality that's much more complex and for a different time. But I guess, again, returning to the uh, Ruth Mazokaras book, I just want to talk about a brief little thing, and then I will link it to um, Indiana Jones. In her book, she talks about, it's five chapters, and she outlines three different types. So it's like intro and conclusion or each a chapter, right? So then you have three main chapters. One is about schools or universities at the time, which is male-dominated. That's not a surprise, I think, to anyone. One is about guilds, so male presentation there. And then the other one's about knights. And I think that when we think about knights, you know, we think about either, I don't know, King Arthur and them running off for the grail, you know, so Last Crusade, or like jousting, right, and like battles, you know, it's so exciting. And again, to bring in Knight's Tale, you know, where men and women are in the crowd and they're like, ah, so exciting. But I'd never thought of this from like the homosocial perspective. So all knights are male, unless you're watching a film where like a woman sneaks in as a jouster. I don't know if there is one, but you know. Yeah, there is. So we're well, not a film. There's a story, an Antonio Calvino one. Hmm, okay. One of, that one's actually made, I'm sorry, I haven't thought of that, but that's actually quite an interesting one. Maybe it's worth reading for both of your researches is one of his like um in his fantastical tales okay 
Or, you know, Joan of Arc, who is probably the quintessential icon for this, but she's doing it for different reasons. But so in this review, this is, I think, really interesting. They're saying that knights and display, so knightly performance and knightly presentation. So this is kind of both. Mm -hmm. And they say, the way in which male and female gazes and male and female bodies performed a complex pirouette or dance, intertwining different strands of desire. So erotic, self-regarding, ego, emulatory, so you want to be like that person, at tournaments. Men performed their masculinity before the eyes of women. Men desired by women looked impressive to other men. Men performing before women felt part of a male group, but also saw themselves as participating in a game of individual prowess. And through that prowess, male beauty was prized and displayed with a definite tinge of the erotic. And then question mark, is this by both sexes? So I thought that was just really like step by step where you think, oh, yes, best night wins. But there is the gaze of both sides. There is men being like, I want to be like that night, man. He's so cool. He's like the best. But there is also this desire that is complicated. <laughs> I off, like I know that in um, my dissertation, I compare that to um, high school football, like American football, yeah. um, where um, you know this collective group of men, you know, try to gain the attention of the cheerleader, and the cheerleader gives them attention back. Mm-hmm. And the most popular guy with the cheerleader, or like in American football, the quarterback, um, is someone to be admired, desired, or envied. Um, and even though they're part of this like group where they have to work together as a team, they're still also competing with each other as to who is the most manly or who presents the most, like the most strength and who gets the most chicks. And it's, um, it's still very, it's, it's such a basic, um, instinct that we kind of like see in everyday life, but when applied to, you know, the knights and like the like the courtship of chivalry mm-hmm. and um you know just tournaments are very dangerous football games <laughs> right or any sports spectacle for that matter mm-hmm. i mean as you're talking i'm thinking this also opens the way there is a bit of a archetype or a trope of one of the football players being gay this happened in buffy the vampire slayer this happens, I mean, in another way, the kind of soft male in High School Musical with Zac Afron's character, who's like the basketball star, loving musicals, you know, which adds friction. And yeah, so it's like, why are these hyper-masculine, like, testosterone fests also at the same time having homoerotic or queer-charged tones to it? And to uh, quote Shizek... I'm sorry, but also the reverse is true. (laughs) Um, Where, um, dare I say, the TV show Glee. (laughs) Yeah. Um, One of the um, gay Glee singers tries out for the American football team and ends up being a kicker. And his dad finally accepts him because he showed masculinity despite presenting a less masculine presence yeah. where it's um that can go into queer coding which can be an entire different thing, thing. yeah <laughs> and for those who have watched that scene he um kicks by putting uh, all the single ladies by Beyonce and it's quite funny you wouldn't expect that in a football scene mm-hmm. yeah I guess 
just our plethora right there of pop culture references touches into this. And so mm-hmm. hopefully that's like highlighting or not, we're not just like being obnoxious or overreading, you know, academics, <laughs> but it's like, no, it's there. And I mean, it's kind of, you know, said if it makes it to pop culture, I'm just thinking of the scene in Devil Wears Prada, you know, where Anne Hathaway's character is like, it's just blue. And then Meryl Streep rips into her, you know, and is like, well, actually in the high fashion and this year and it trickles down and then you got this in a sad box somewhere. But that's how it works, right? Like there's something that is a lived truth that then is written about or performed or something that then trickles down into becoming these kind of repetitive themes or something. And we see that in Indiana Jones. (laughs) I feel like we haven't really like talked about that. So first of all, I've always known that, you know, the third film is called The Last Crusade, Mm -hmm. but I never really like thought about it. Like The Last Crusade, the motherfucking medieval crusades. Like (laughs) I know that this is like partially about, you know, the Holy Land in Jerusalem. Part of it is also going for the Holy Grail and everything, but I feel like a dum-dum that I never like synthesized those two. Mm-hmm. It's just like my medieval radar, you know, is now on scale 11. But so there's that as well as, so the scene we talked about with the knight and I did like Indiana Jones just walks in with his you know, bowl whip and stuff in this night. It's like, I've been waiting. You are strong and valiant. But also in another scene of the film, which I thought about playing is, Indiana gets into like Nazi uniform and is able to just walk into, you know, the heart of this Nazi rally and no one bats an eye because he is, you know, performing as a Nazi person, but he also presents just due to the way that he looks as a strong, burly man, blondish hair, even though his eyes aren't blue, it's like he just passes. And when he, you know, there's the scene where he gets the autograph from Adolf Hitler no one bats an eye. You know, it's supposed to be this tense moment. So I guess with that, Paula, if you have thoughts or want to just kind of run with that or have questions, but I, my, what I was thinking about this, I was like, holy shit, man. <laughs> I'm actually shocked you didn't uh, talk about like the presence, like it being called the last crusade. A crusader is a very dominating male presence because that is a conquistador. That is a conqueror. That is someone you send because you trust them to carry your banner and invade somewhere else and succeed. You know, so for it to be the last crusade is also such a male thing because it's just like, I will win. Like I'm going forward and doing this thing. But yeah, the performance of like a fascist person um, is very much in tune with like the performance of masculinity. Uh, Indiana Jones knew exactly what to do. He saw it. He he adapted. And even though he didn't believe it, or at least we hope he didn't (laughs) um, during the scene, um, his performance of it shows also the fragility of masculinity in itself, where as long as you just copy what everyone else is doing, you just get away with it and it continues to perpetuate. And to go against the flow is what makes you stand out. That's how he would have been caught. Mm-hmm. So yes, masculine masculinity or masculine presence here is not just a physical trait, but also the maintenance of that is what lets him go all the way through that scene. It's not just to walk the walk, but to talk the talk. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> that was 
<laughs> and I guess also, you know, when we think of how Nazis are portrayed in films and television series, there is the sense of pride in regards to the uniform, right? That it has to be perceived. And this is like a very militarized thing. The mm-hmm. term and a half that I was in the Air Force ROTC, I mean, I fucking dreaded having when we had uniform checks because you had to legitimately measure how far the like pin was off on the lapel. And if it wasn't a, it was like a centimeter and a half or something. And they would like hold a ruler up to you. You and your squad want to be punished. Like it's intense, but yeah, with the Nazis, you know, and the kind of like iconic, you know, the high boots and pants and belts and blah, 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 all that stuff is, you know, it's very curated. It's maintained. It's, delicately shined and polished, presented, you know, that there's this like care in it, but it's also male pride. And I just kind of, you know, you think today of uh, when people put makeup on and they spend the time to curate themselves. And I just feel like there's a kind of a, again, you know, people are like, oh, women take so long to get ready or oh, they take so long to get ready. But when it's this super hyper male thing, it's okay. And I guess, I don't know. Also, it's so strange. I feel like, the, the, you know, the stereotype of women take so long to get ready. Most of the time, women don't take that long to, take, to get ready. It's mainly men. Like, in my experience, all the men I know take forever to get ready. I mean, sorry, this is just, I know this is not particularly <laughs> like, but like, it's something that really annoys me. It's like one of my pet yeah. peeves. I find this just like a really annoying, like... I have friends position. that are cis well, women that take a shit ton of time. So, <laughs> I wasn't I, I even like, calling you up, but like, I, I have some people where it's like, I'm ready in 10 minutes with my makeup and my hair, and they're just getting started. Yeah, I, you have showed up to my home, and I've been like, give me like 30 minutes, and it's like uh, eyeliner. <laughs> um, so an interesting essay that I did not get to use, but is really good, is Susan Sontag's uh, Fascinating uh, Fascism from 1979. And it's basically her talking about like what captivates us about the aesthetics of fascism, if you're into that sort of thing. They were really well designed. But in terms of uniform, it's sort of going back to the knighthood. It's about maintaining order. It's not about the uniform itself, because mostly it's made of cheap material and if it's not made from cheap material it's so mass produced that it doesn't really matter but the important part is um maintaining order so if your uniform is a centimeter off or if a button is not replaced properly it's you're punished for it it's about being told what to do and you doing it regardless of how like minute the problem may be. And I'm guessing in terms of like knighthood, it should have been the same thing, especially with everything being fit. So particularly to an individual's body that if you don't stretch the breastplate enough, you know, that man could suffocate or can get injured because there's a hole or there's too much room. Um, So it's about maintaining order within ranks. So it's not really about the item itself. Well, it's funny too, just because there is a little bit of the mythical romantic medieval in that. Yes, the, the armor had to fit a certain way, but also, I mean, these guys were fucking riding horses for days on end. And though the Middle Ages aren't as dirty as, you know, we think they are, they stank. They would be muddy and dirty. And I don't really know much about, you know, polishing armor or something, but just there is a bit of a romanticization 
of that. And also his armor's fucking heavy. Like <laughs> heavy. You know, so they can't necessarily always just like swagger around. I mean Well, they had so- different sets, right? There was one for like tournaments and that kind of thing, which was like the fancier set. And then there was like the set that was actually for war, and that one was just like a throw-on piece, like, all right. Don't die. It depends. Um, So knights are traditionally from the aristocracy because they have the money to be funded Mm -hmm. like this. You could be like offered as a squire from a not, you know, wealthy and try to ascend to that. But it also does just depend not only on your reputation, but the finances you have. Some did just have like one armor set. And then, yeah, you also had your showboats that had – a bunch of different types, but we also have to think armor is expensive. It takes a really long time to be made. Uh, also traveling with it. Yeah. So there is like a lot of different things that it's just like, you know, packing your suitcase. Imagine if you like had to pack your five different sets of armor or something and it does get worn, especially if you're in battle, like mm-hmm. worn not only is like physically wearing, but also like damaged and worn down. And mm-hmm. so it's always kind of funny when you watch a movie and the night, you know, defeats the whatever, and they show up to court, and their armors like got a scratch. And you're like, bro, there were knives and arrows and bludgeons and horses and all kinds of other things attacking this armor. Like, yes. please put like a little bit of a blood stain there, please. Yes, yeah. <laughs> not all of it, but there there is a bit. I always think is uh, funny. Hello, do you have any thoughts? I have. I feel like it, it, I keep going back to the Italo Calvino book. Mm-hmm. For some reason, because it's it's called the Cloven Viscount, and it was published in 1952, and it's really interesting because it's the scene where you have like a knight who's in battle, and he's great, and he's elusive, and everything, and he's really important, and then you have in the backstory the fact that this is a, an actual is actually a woman, and so you have the hyper masculine that is portrayed onto the costume, and then behind it you have like you know, what is considered to be the complete opposite. And so it's quite interesting. I keep having images of comparison while you guys are speaking about these things, which (laughs) I know very little about. And I keep having this vivid, like, visual in my mind of like, oh, oh, God, this is so relevant. (laughs) That's great. That's what we try to do is have people have connections and everything. I recommend it. It's quite short. (laughs) Definitely. You've uh, mentioned Calvino a few times, so yeah. definitely get on that. One other Indiana Jones link, and I think this is again a broad stroke. I'm so impressed with how like much Indiana Jones is tying into this. I just <laughs> thought of it last night. And I met, I texted Ella, and I was like, "I'm talking about Indiana Jones." Didn't think I was gonna hone it in this hard, but when, when the connections click, they click. So Indiana Jones, for those of you who forget, because it sometimes kind of gets lost in the action you know, journey is that he's an archaeologist. So his job is finding and studying human activity through the recovery and analysis of material culture. So, you know, artifacts, going to digs, as well as just like in the museum. And I think that this is really compelling for historians today, particularly in looking either at the medieval or more recent with, you know, Nazism, because historians of all forms are in a way archaeologists. Like Paula, you are performing, you know, as a metaphorical archaeologist and looking at these photo objects, these book objects. I will be doing a similar thing when I look at saints and these hagiographic texts and the manuscripts. 
And Ello, when you were doing your research on Blake, Dali, yeah. um, Dante and all that, I mean, you were digging, you were sifting, you know, I mean, this yeah. is like a metaphoric, but I was just wondering, Paula, when we think also of, uh, I guess when you're like mining or digging medieval representations and Nazi masculinity, if you have any thoughts or... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, so, that got loaded. I said it was a very broad kind of. <laughs> no, so do you mean like um, how like I feel about coming across like nightly images when I do research on like Nazism? It could be that or other just elements of, you know, repeating masculinity that you've seen or masculinity mm-hmm. uh, shifting itself, reperforming and representing itself or redoing itself. You know, it's a very open question. Yeah, I would say um, if, uh, it's sort of like a nostalgia factor. Um, oh, yeah. 100%. Where. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so usually, like, for example, with, um, with Indiana Jones, particularly, it is looking back at this idea of masculinity in the 30s and 40s. You know, especially the first Indiana Jones, uh, Hitler technically hasn't risen to power yet. And, you know, he's out there looking for the Holy Grail. And so we're attaching all these ideas of what it meant to be a manly, macho, historian, intelligent man in this time period during this time of war in the United States going into other countries. So it's a very specific idea. Um, And we're applying a very general coat of paint on it. You know, Mm -hmm. Indiana is shown very strong, independent. He doesn't need anyone until he does. Um, And, you know, like he's shown as this like macho, singular individual. It's him against the world. Yeah, He's the cowboy instead of the knight in a way. Yes. And it sort of manifests into us, the audience, either wanting to have him or be him or envy him. So it goes back to that sort of performance. But, you know, instead of like the actual physical person in front of us, it's just like that separation with the audience in the film. But when it comes to studying, you know, Nazism and its connections to knights. There's a lot of images in actually all the way back to Kaiser Wilhelm II. So even before this, like even before the end of World War One, where he's shown in as he's dressed up as a monk as a part of this like knight uh, secret society. I can go into it, but <laughs> it's a lot <laughs> for another time. Then <laughs> another time. But um, it's this image of the knight, and it's used to link not just this idea of masculinity and tradition and heritage, but also its links to its own past. So it's like reflecting like the history itself. So um, Germany, including Austria and Prussia, um, they were all part of, they were part of the Crusades. This entire land was also taking part in the Crusades. It wasn't just England. So it's a tie into their own medieval history. So it's sort of looking at the knight or the figure of like the medieval in this nostalgic, like, ah, see, this is when we were great. This reminds me of that. Um, Do you remember what we did with Bob when we saw that project, that photographic project on like... Oh, the modern knight project? Yes. This is... Um, Yeah, I don't remember the name of it, but... Well, we'll put it in the the comments, but um, that reminds me of that. It's just, it's so interesting 
when studying this because first of all in preparing for today how i mean the nazis definitely did this and it's a big research field but they're not the only ones historically who have ever mm-hmm. done this and then second of all how mythological this past that they're talking about is because nation states as we think of them today as they were thinking of them didn't exist until the early 19th century midnight like, like it just wasn't a thing these were different kingdoms that had shifting borders they were different tribes they were different um like dukedoms and everything and so it's always just kind of funny because like when I think of even this you know studying certain like monasteries or something where at one point they were German what is German because you had like three different types of areas that intersected or you know you think of like oh well Norway and Sweden are different nope that comes from like Saxon Anglo-Saxon this is all coming from like the Germanic French area and it's always just kind of I find it so interesting, the like mythology and lore around what this past is. And of course, the Aryan manufactured past of the Nazis plays on this and then, you know, tries to point itself to elements of, I don't know, the Bible or something like that. And Because there's one word, one, you know, and create this whole history. And I always just find it really interesting. I mean, like in my research with Poland, Poland totally does this. Mm-hmm. 100%. You know, um, England does it. Ireland does it, France does it, Italy does it, but in different ways. But yeah, this medieval dark era, I guess because it's seen as dark, like if no one knows, you can just do whatever the fuck you want with it, which <laughs> we're discovering isn't true. <laughs> well, but it's so interesting, isn't it? Like also if I was thinking about like fascism and Nazism, the whole Mussolini's thing was going back to like ancient Greece. Yeah. And so, like, the fact that, like, I mean, obviously, you know, all the other political stuff and all the horrible mm-hmm. stuff, but, like, the fact that, like, fascism and Nazism at one point or another went hand in hand is interesting because, like, the reference points are completely different. And, in fact, like, Mussolini's whole thing was, like, you know, like, the ideal Italy, which is just the Italy that was, like, way, way Millennia long ago. ago. Yeah. Well, it's, there's, like, that fondness to go back to a better time and I did that with quotation marks yeah yeah. (laughs) (laughs) um you know like it can go all the way back to even the Victorian era where all these uh rich Victorians were building medieval castles you know in the middle of nowhere just to recreate this sense of simplicity um, for themselves and in a way that can manifest through political movements in that instead of addressing whatever current issues are happening it is easier to go well it was easier back then so let's go back to that without considering that Maybe the past was just as complicated. It just had different problems. Yeah. Or there was just, you know, the Middle Ages were full of so many wars and battles, not just big crusades, Hundred Years' War, War of the Roses, all this stuff. I mean, there were like just... Inter- just, you know, day-to-day stuff. Yeah, as we go, there's like a lot going on there where you're like, man, let's go back to this time. And you're like, hmm, but that's the pastoral really romantic, yeah. which we talked about with like Janina and yeah. um, Amelia. Because with Amelia, we talked a bit about the Gothic revival, which you're uh, talking about, uh, Paola, or referencing. But yeah, I think knights are just such a fascinating, like, trope to consider because they are linked to this hyper-masculinity and have been repurposed for, like, Mm -hmm. problematic causes, you know, like fascism. But then also they're called upon America, Canada, England, France, all use knight imagery during World War I and World War II. So I guess uh, kind of like um, 
a little question for you, Paola, is, you know, before delving into this kind of like field, did you ever think about Middle Ages or like what kind of relationship did you have to it? So for me, the Middle Ages was always um, divided because, you know, I grew up Hispanic, Latina Americana, um, but not really. So <laughs> I'm from Puerto Rico, the Caribbean. So my relationship to the medieval was always sort of split between what was the European medieval, what was my island's medieval, and then what was the rest of Latino America's medieval. <laughs> so I grew up like lear- like learning those three distinctions because up until I want to say like ninth grade, no, not ninth grade, but like sixth grade United States, mm-hmm. most of my exposure was through education in Puerto Rico or a mix of Puerto Rico and America and the United States. So for me, the medieval looked very, very different depending on the context I was given. So sometimes someone would say, well, yeah, the medieval. And I would think, you know, what was happening in like Mexico and what was happening in Chile and Argentina with all these different tribes and, you know, different cultures. And then so I'd be like, no, 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 like, Arthurian medieval and then I'm like oh okay so the one with the the shiny swords and the and the clinky armor (laughs) (laughs) we have briefly talked about how the medieval as like a name is very rarely applied to the Americas whether it be you know pre-colonial North America and Canada Central America or South America, it's always seen more through the lens of colonialism, conquistadors. But even before that, which, you know, was late medieval because we're talking about 14, 1500s and 1600s, then it kind of goes to this quote-unquote primal, which is just fucking wrong, you know, but the idea Mm -hmm. of the indigenous people's history, at least this is my American perspective of what I was taught in my shitty history books. I'm not going to lie, yeah, but but I I didn't even ever think about this until a couple of years ago, so um, my European education was no better. (laughs) I have Floridian education, so (laughs) 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 I'm leaving it at that. (laughs) But like Ello and I have talked about doing um, The Emperor's New Groove as a medieval text because there was a Getty blog that listed that as one of the most medieval films, but also because you don't think of that as medieval at all, because there's such a Eurocentric perspective, both Eastern Europe, Central Europe, and Western Europe, because Mm -hmm. you see these tropes also in Poland, Lithuania, Estonia, the Baltics, Russia, like even parts of the Near East, not Mm -hmm. always, but it is kind of that area. And you're like, "Eh, no, like China, Southeast Asia, Different different ideas or lived experiences of the uh, the medieval. So that'll have to be a future thing. But yeah. it's so interesting as well because I feel like you're obviously you know all of these things are so subjective to your personal experience to where you are in that physical moment, so like your culture and all that. So it's really interesting to think that like you grew up like with such a diverse mindset that like mm-hmm. I just have only acquired at twenty five <laughs> and not really because my default still goes back to this kind of like typical stuff so it's really it's really interesting to think that like that that, therefore like the way that you may view the world could be completely different to the way that I view the world and it can and the same for you because um the bad part about having a more diverse education is that you learn the very basics of everything (laughs) so you never go in depth um like I'm very unfamiliar with like the structure of how England was created and I'm currently living here (laughs) (laughs) you know um so it's 
it's really fascinating, I think, also for all of us to just get together and talk about such a broad thing, modern, medieval, and then we're going yes. 10 different tangents. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess to kind of follow that and bookend this conversation, Paula, what is your like favorite medieval fact, tidbit, pop culture reference, whatever we ask this, our guests? So, so I think this technically counts um, the dancing plague of the fifteen of fifteen eighteen in Strasbourg. Yes, it's right at the the cusp of yes. the medieval. You're talking about like beginning of early modern. It could be contested, but so right, we'll we'll count it. <laughs> this yeah. is the this is like the Tarantella yeah. plague, right? Where people yeah. dance to death and everything like that, well, or exhaustion. Okay. Yeah, they dance. Uh, they they like died from exhaustion. I just think it's absolutely wild because they were like fifteen people were dying a day, and they still have no idea if one if it was actually real. <laughs> Two, how did it spread? And yeah. three, just what did that look like? So it's like theorized that it's either like mass food poisoning or mass hysteria. And it's just like, (laughs) those are two different ends. (laughs) Yeah. I think I listened to an episode of the podcast lore. And if I recall, it was like something in the bread that caused Mm -hmm. like last week, Ello, in one of our fun facts, I said there was hallucinogenic bread that was because of a bacteria. (laughs) So um, yeah, it might've been something like that, but I guess also going off that Pella, why is that like, why do you think that's medieval? Like, because it is such a late mm-hmm. medieval, like what, I'm just curious as to why that's like, is it just because of like the spectacle and like not understanding it or that like interests you or like, I don't know. I'm just, I'm curious because it is such a late medieval thing that I just love the morbid. <laughs> Let's just start there. I, uh, cause it was between this or the trial of the dead Pope that I was uh, going to bring up. Either one is amazing to me. Um, <laughs> It's, it's a mix of like a little bit of that true crime and like disease. And no, I think the reason I, it literally popped into my brain is a little bit boring. I was listening to either Lore or I was watching another uh, YouTube channel and they were talking about it and it just like stayed in my brain. But also the fact that where it took place, it wasn't, it was, it's now technically in France, but it was part of Germany, but then it switched back and forth. So mm-hmm. for me, like I kind of associate the medieval as a time of borders are just suggested. <laughs> true. Where it's like, we can be in either country and no one cares because they have real life problems. <laughs> like a dancing flag. <laughs> well, and I also think that I wonder if subconsciously or on some level, like Ella and I talk about this all the time where, oh, it's weird. It doesn't make sense. It's medieval. Like yeah. that's something that happens even today where, you yeah. know, you, something happens and it could be totally contemporary. Something that's so, you know, 2019, 2020, mm-hmm. whatever. People are like, is that during the middle ages? Because it just doesn't make sense. And I, it's, it's just funny that's such like a socially ingrained kind of thing. Yeah, oh, this is weird. Is. This doesn't make sense or isn't whatever. And you're like, it's medieval, which is great for us. I love it. <laughs> but it is just kind of funny. It keeps I, us going. It keeps yeah. us having stuff to talk about. <laughs> so, um, Pella, speaking of stuff to talk about, where can our audience like find you? I'm currently mostly just available through Instagram, and please do not laugh at my Instagram handle. It is Golf <laughs> Art Daddy as one full word. <laughs> I love it. Great, and so we'll put that link in our um, our show notes, so maybe you'll get some new followers. Yeah, maybe by the next time we have you on, you'll have like a different 
or an additional thing. And if not, that's cool too. Fingers crossed. Hello. We do not have just one place to find us. Oh, I know. <laughs> We're quite complicated, aren't we? Yeah. So on social media, you can find us on Facebook by typing Modern Medieval Podcast. And you can find us as a group or as a page. On Instagram, you can find us by typing podcast.modern.medieval. On our, you can contact us via email if you've got anything that you want to talk about. Um, typing modern.medieval.podcast.gmail.com. You can find us on YouTube by typing Modern Medieval Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon by typing Modern Medieval Podcast. And finally, our Twitter sphere. Yes, Twitter, last one. Woo, woo. Find us on Twitter at the handle at medieval underscore modern. Until next time, I'm Megan. And I'm Ellen. And this is Modern Medieval, the podcast. Do, 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 do.